You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. You have a, a real treat coming your way today. We have Matthias Henza, who is a professor of Hebrew Bible and early Judaism at Rice University, and we're here to talk about Messiah. Yeah, and you know, just even that thing, his title, Hebrew Bible and Early Judaism, that's, he'll get to that, that why that's sort of an important way of thinking about uh, all this time period that's relevant for Jesus and the New Testament. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm particularly excited to have Matthias on because I've known him for, I guess, maybe 25 years now. We were classmates together in graduate school, and uh, he came a couple years after I did, and he was just such a breath of fresh air. He, and you'll you'll see this. He's such a nice guy, and uh, pretty darn smart too. He's thought an awful lot about Jesus in the context of the Judaism that he lived in, which is a rather obvious thing to say. Now that it's coming out of my like, why wouldn't you do that, right? But but again, we're not always trained to do that, and 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 bringing out the Jewishness of Jesus, and we talked about it, a specific issue. We'll get to that. Uh, it's just very enlightening, and it's it's fun to hear, and, and you see, my goodness gracious, this stuff is really deep. Yeah, yeah. Well, really let's get deep. into this conversation then. Yep. So my point is for us to get a better understanding of Jesus' world, of this Jewish world of Jesus, we need to read beyond the Bible. We need to turn to other Jewish texts of the time of the New Testament in order to get a fuller understanding of this world that the New Testament authors just take for granted. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. 
Well, welcome, Matthias, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, before we get started in some of the, the heavy hitting we hope to, to cover on this episode, maybe you can give us a little bit of your background, uh, maybe a little spiritual bio. How did you come to study what you study? Uh, why, was it, why were you drawn to it? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, I spent the first half of my life in Germany. I was born there, grew up there. And uh, my father, of blessed memory, uh, was born in 1923 and um, was uh, a soldier in, in uh, World War II. Um, he tried to avoid it, but um, everybody was drafted. Um, fortunately, he survived. Um, and so I was born 20 years after the war. Um, but the war was always in our house growing up. It was always present, and certainly when we traveled, we were always the Germans. And so, even from a very young age on, I developed an interest in World War II, especially Germany's role, and, and the history of the Jews in Germany. Um, and so, contacted the synagogue, um, got in touch with them, and so I always had an interest in Judaism. Um, initially, Judaism in Germany, but then also beyond. And then I studied theology in Germany, um, wanted to become a, uh, a Lutheran pastor, but liked the critical studies so much, liked the university so much that I decided to become an academic and then came to the United States to do my PhD here in the States. And it was really at that time that I was introduced to what we call Second Temple Judaism, that is to say Judaism towards the latter half of the historical period we associate with the Old Testament. Um, and that um, helped me um, in a very meaningful way to combine my interests in Judaism, in theology, in Christian origins, and how to bring all of that together. So, were you raised Lutheran? Yes, I was. Okay. Um, my parents were not religious, um, but I grew up in northern Germany where you are either Catholic or Lutheran. So, right. I was raised Lutheran and I still am a Lutheran. My wife is a Lutheran pastor. Wow. So, can, can you, you mentioned a, a phrase that might be newer to uh, some of our listeners, the Second Temple Judaism, and you, you mentioned a little bit, but can you say more about, about what it is and why is it significant in Christian faith, in Judaism, in the history of Israel? Um, can you say a little bit more? Sure. So, just in historical terms, the, um, what Christians call the Old Testament is a collection of books that was written over a very long period of time, roughly speaking, a thousand years or so. And we develop, we, we distinguish, we divide this period into um, two larger periods, the, what we call the First Temple Period. Um, that is the temple that was built by King Solomon and then destroyed in the 6th century by the Babylonians um, that led to the Babylonian exile. And then after the Israelites returned from exile, the temple was rebuilt um, and a second temple was erected in Jerusalem. So the second temple period, um, historically speaking, then begins in the 6th century before the Common Era and runs all the way into the 1st century of the Common Era when the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. Now, for the longest time, Christian theologians have really neglected the second temple period and have argued that the first temple is much more important. Uh, that's when the great prophets lived. They thought that much of the Torah, or the five books of Moses were written at that time. Whereas the second temple period was sort of the, the, the later period of the biblical period that, that didn't really have 
uh, much value in and of itself. And that perception, that sort of pejorative or negative view of the later centuries that we associate with the Old Testament, changed dramatically in the 20th century. And there are several reasons for it, but perhaps the most important was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, these are ancient Jewish fragments that were discovered in the Judean desert um, and that really opened up a fabulous window into this uh, period in the history of ancient Israel. The Dead Sea Scrolls attracted a lot of um, interest, both among scholars and lay people. They brought a lot of new material to the table, and all of a the sudden there was this energy around the Second Temple period, and people started to pay much more attention to these texts. And you, you mentioned, Matthias, um, the looking down on the Second Temple period and being neglected. I, I even recall it being referred to as the post-biblical period, like after the return from exile, nothing much is happening. People are just twiddling their thumbs waiting for Jesus to show up and like Judaism is sort of dying and, and on the way out. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, among other things, right, have helped us gain a very, very different perspective on the it's, period. It's, it's all true what you're saying. It's quite fascinating if you look at the uh, large textbooks, the history of ancient Israel textbooks that were written in the middle of the 20th century you will see that these um, authors, the modern authors, Christian authors, only spend a few pages on the Second Temple period. They think that this is a, a late form of ancient Israel. It's increasingly deteriorating, um, and you can almost smell the um, anti-Judaism um, that has plagued Christian theology for such a long time, right? Um, this is... Uh, uh, the forebearers of rabbinic Judaism's certain obsession with keeping the Torah, the free spirit of the prophets has sort of left Israel. And so we're waiting until Jesus comes and then um, reignites um, religion, infuses it with a fresh spirit. This is, of course, a caricature that is not informed by any texts, but uh, reflects the prejudices of the people who study this period. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls and really other texts from this period, not only the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, have helped us to study this period on its own grounds, to read these texts without a bias, without a Christian anti-Jewish prejudice, and to be um, much more realistic and better informed about um, the Judaism um, really of Jesus. And calling it the Second Temple period is an example of making this more neutral and not biased against Judaism, as opposed to what I grew up saying was the intertestamental period, yes, the period between true. the testaments. But um, th this gives this period its own integrity. And of course, the New Testament was maybe not entirely, but largely written during the Second Temple period. So yes. the New Testament is a Second Temple text, right? So T Terminology is revealing here, isn't it? I agree with you that uh, calling it Second Temple Judaism is helpful and that it is descriptive, um, but it's also not helpful because um, not many people know what that means, so you have to explain it. So some of right. my colleagues also like the term early Judaism. Um, mm. That's a term that is again um, coined in response to a tendency 
um, among, again, Christian theologians to speak of, German theologians to speak of Spätjudentum or late Judaism, uh, which was also a way to uh, refer to this period, which is strongly pejorative. Late Judaism meaning Judaism has almost run its course, right? It's, it's dying. Uh, it's dying. It's coming exactly. to an end. Exactly. Christianity is here and it's done, right? So. so, speaking of early Judaism is a response to that. Right. And and uh, it's, it's really, which is interesting because it's the birth of Judaism. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. Yes. We, we can't speak yes. of Judaism before the exile. That's, that's Israelite exactly right. religion, I mean, in various forms, but it's afterwards that we have what comes to be called Judaism. So, yeah, yes, it's, yes. It's, it's all connected historically, and that brings us to the New Testament then. Very much so. You yeah. know, I want to go back to what you said, that the New Testament is a second temple period. So, is like, what's the significance of this time period and I would imagine it gives us a robust context now whereby we might have interjected or put onto the New Testament for years and probably centuries our own interpretations of these texts based on our own assumptions. But then this rediscovery of these texts situate the New Testament in a whole new light. Were there some, as you were studying this, were there some some insights that you were gaining about how your uh, study of this text really brings to light the New Testament. Yes, there are many, and I um, like to talk about these um, these examples when I give talks both in, in churches and synagogues. And, and often what I do is I start out like this. I say, in the New Testament, we all know that Jesus goes into the synagogue regularly, as Luke tells us, right? And then I say, in the Old Testament, there are no synagogues where Jesus is called a rabbi by his followers. In the Old Testament, there are no rabbis. Jesus spends much of his time discussing legal issues with the Pharisees. There are no Pharisees in the Old Testament. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus expels demons. There are really no demons, at least not of the kind we meet in the New Testament, no in exorcisms. Right, exactly, exorcisms, exactly. Yeah. So, that raises all kinds of questions. If in the New Testament the authors assume an entire Jewish world, which we cannot find in the Old Testament, where is it coming from? And so, typically, what I find in churches is that people read through the New Testament and they see these Jewish elements they don't quite know what it means. What was a synagogue? What did people do? What was a rabbi? What was the responsibility of a rabbi? And then they look around and they want to find other Jewish texts that help them understand the New Testament. And of course, many Christians will turn to the Old Testament, the assumption being that the Old Testament is the Jewish part of the Bible, the Christian Bible, and the New Testament is the Christian part of the, Jew of the uh, Bible, only to find that there really are no texts that help them understand the Jewish world of Jesus. And so my point is for us to get a better understanding of Jesus's world, of this Jewish world of Jesus, we need to read beyond the Bible. We need to turn to other Jewish texts um, of the time of the New Testament, perhaps slightly before, but not very much, in order to get a fuller understanding of this world that the New Testament authors just take for granted, right? They don't stop. They never tell us, oh, by the way, a rabbi 
as this and that responsibilities. <laughs> but they don't. They just assume that we know these things. What would be some examples of those uh, of those books from the Second Temple that were written uh, that we that people could turn to? So there are the so-called apocrypha. The apocrypha are extra books um, included in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew text. So when you go to Barnes and Noble and you buy a Bible and you pay a little extra dollars, you, the cover of your Bible will read the Holy Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament with the Apocrypha. So there's some extra books included. All of the Apocrypha were written in the late Second Temple period. So these are books like Tobit or Judith or First and Second Maccabees or Ben Sira. And then beyond the Apocrypha, there are other books that at the time of Jesus were rather influential, but we have sort of forgotten about. For example, there's a book called the Book of Jubilees of the second century before the Common Era, which is a beautiful retelling or interpretation of the Book of Genesis and the first half of the Book of Exodus. Or another book that recently has gotten enormous attention from scholars is a book we know as First Enoch, it's an apocalypse, not unlike the book of Revelation in the New Testament, only that this book is attributed to this character called Enoch, who is briefly mentioned in the book of Genesis in chapter 5. And it's basically a story about the fallen angels, the watchers who came to earth and introduced all kind of knowledge that humans were not supposed to have. And then there yeah, are and those and those characters came up in the Noah movie that came out several years ago because that, no seriously right. that's they they incorporated first Enoch into yes. the retelling of that story. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service, and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in 
and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So sometimes I tell, I tell my students, if um, we could time travel and have coffee with Jesus, or if I speak at the synagogue, I say with Hillel, right? A rabbi generation or so before Jesus. And you would ask Jesus, um, what did you read last night before you fell asleep? Right? What is the book that you find most gripping or the scroll or whatever? Chances are Jesus would give you a name of a book that we've never heard of before. Hmm. Which is another way of saying the Bible only gives us a slim excerpt of the books that were in circulation at the time of Jesus. There were many, many other books that were read and in some communities at least were quite influential that didn't make it into the Bible. And what that means they didn't make it into the Bible is that they were no longer copied and forgotten until they were rediscovered at a much later time. So what I'm trying to do and what my colleagues who work in this field are trying to do is to reintroduce these forgotten texts of the Second Temple Library, of the early Jewish library, into our discourse in order to complement the biblical writings with these extra biblical books. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, help us understand Jesus and the New Testament maybe more deeply and more in a more well-rounded fashion than... Uh, maybe entertaining some false assumptions that we sometimes have when we uh, engage these texts. Absolutely. I have, yes, I have no interest in taking away the canon or relativizing the significance of the canon or saying that the New Testament is really only derivative of other Jewish texts. Much to the contrary, I think, once we read the New Testament in the context of the Jewish literature of its time, it becomes even more impressive and more marvelous. Okay. Well, let's, let's focus on one issue. And uh, concerning Jesus, and that is the notion of Jesus as Messiah. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to pick on that one because, again, I teach college students at a Christian college, and we talk about this a lot, like what that term even means, where it comes from. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a lot may have happened to the significance of that term between, let's say, the first temple and second temple period. Yeah, yeah. So, let's can we let's like – Take sure, this sure. idea apart a little bit, maybe yes. even starting with some soundings within the Hebrew Bible itself, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then moving forward. Let's start with the word itself. Yes. The English word Messiah derives from the Hebrew word Mashiach, or in Arabic, Mashiachah is the same word. And it simply means the anointed one of the Hebrew root Mashach, meaning to anoint. And so, when we turn to the Old Testament, I guess the first question to ask is, are there any anointed ones or messiahs in the Old Testament? And the answer is, yes, there are plenty, but not the kind of messiah that we associate with Jesus. That is to say, there are people in the Old Testament who are anointed, but they are not end-time agents of God who usher in a new world. 
but they are rather of a different kind. Specifically, they are uh, kings, they are priests, and they are prophets. The most important group here are the kings. So when King David, for example, um, becomes king, it is Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 who anoints him into office. He becomes a king through the act of anointing. That's our root, Mashach. He becomes a Mashiach, if you will, and spirit-possessed when Samuel anoints him. And, and Matthias, this is anointed by oil. This is anointed is right? by a special okay. kind of oil. Exactly okay. right, yeah. Okay. There are other people who are called messiahs as well. Um, but again, it's important to emphasize that these are not end-time figures. These are not people who come to put an end to history as we know it. That idea only gradually evolved out of lots of different strands in the Old Testament. But I'll come back to David and say um, other kings of the line of David who were anointed into office um, were described in increasingly uh, fabulous, almost utopian fashion. So I'm thinking of texts like Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 at the very beginning is this famous prophecy of um, a new king who is uh, ascending the throne. He is um, said to be possessed by the spirit of the Lord. Um, he will judge the world with righteousness. And then there are these very famous lines, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. So there's a, an almost utopian description of what this king will accomplish um, that um, is not, it's not very difficult for me to understand um, how early readers of this text, which originally may simply have been a celebration of a new king on the throne, uh, was soon read to be more than that. That early interpreters of this text couldn't help but think that the person who's being described here is none other than a messianic figure. Me messianic in the in a different sense of the word. Exactly, messianic right. in the sense of an end time figure. Like apocalyptic kind yes, of figure. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. right. And so originally, like a passage like you just read, Isaiah 11, made perfect sense within the context of the time, right? But yes, exactly. It, it was open to maybe creative interpretations yes. as time went on. Right? Yes. Because it's, it's such exaggerated language, which, you know, the writer there may simply be claiming for a king an exalted status. And you use, I mean, is it fair to say there, there's like hyperbolic language, exaggerated language, right? Okay. All right. That just, that just was meant to express the significance of the Davidic line, right? The significance of the inauguration of a king. Hey everyone, my name is Reed and I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm interrupting this podcast episode to first say thank you for listening. Your support helps make the Bible for Normal People possible, and our team is incredibly thankful for that. I know the podcast and the whole Bible for Normal People platform has meant so much to me over the past few years, and it's been great to meet other theological nerds. If you want to meet other theological nerds, or normal people, I guess, you can do this and support us by becoming a Patreon supporter. For as little as $1 per month, you can support Bible for Normal People, and you get some pretty cool perks along the way, like weekly videos or online hangouts with Pete and Jared. We also want to thank some of our producers group from Patreon. So a big thanks to Chuck Hess, 
Julie Frazier, Chris Giravon, Dintel Coward, Willard Vaughn, Chad Gilstrap, Gerald Hart, and Jeff Gwynn. Now, enjoy the rest of your episode. Yes. Yeah, let's, can we work in uh, maybe another passage here that I know that comes up a lot is Psalm 2? Yes, that's a great. And how that, yeah, how that adds to this sort of idea of maybe the exaggerated language of yes, the Yes, I so, think that's yeah. a great text. So, Psalm 2 is really a good text to look at in order to understand these exaggerated hopes that were associated with the king in Jerusalem. So, right at the beginning, in the first three verses of Psalm 2, we learn that there were nations who conspire and attack um, against Jerusalem. Um, they are forming um, together this coalition to attack Jerusalem. Um, the king in Israel, who speaks a little later in the psalm, is confident that they cannot do anything. And in uh, his response, he remembers the time when he was consecrated. He, he, re- he remembers the time when he ascended the throne. And he speaks there of what he calls the decree of the Lord. Um, And what it is that he was promised when he became king is that God adopted him, that God said to him, and I quote here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So there we have father and son language. The king in Israel is not exactly divine, uh, right? An Israelite author would not do what we find in ancient Egypt, for example, in Mesopotamia, mm-hmm. namely declare the king divine. That's not what's going on here. But nonetheless, the king enjoys a certain proximity to God that normal people simply don't have. And what that means is that God adopted him, says, you are my son, and has strengthened him. Um, this king will be able to defeat um, all nations of the world who would ever attack Jerusalem. And so the psalm is significant because it um, tells us that the king was the son of God in a certain way and that he has this ability to defeat the nations. This is exactly a motif that will be picked up in later apocalyptic texts where the Messiah is said to come to Jerusalem, the holy mountain or the holy hill, as it is called in Psalm 2 to defend um, Israel and to defeat Israel's enemies. Okay, so we have in in the Hebrew scriptures themselves and in other places too, I'm thinking like 2 Samuel chapter 7 where right. the, the, the right. reign of David, his descendants will never cease being on the throne. It's It seems like a perpetual covenant that doesn't come to an end. And of course it does, but that's mm-hmm. another story <laughs> with the exile and that prompt some of the thinking that people that Jews and Christians have later on but um, yes. the, the point is that th- th- there is a in the exaggerated language of kingship in in the Hebrew scriptures we have the impetus for let's say later development so let's let's get to that yes. let's talk about yes. how these things and maybe why they were taken the way they were during at some point during the second temple maybe the late second temple yes. period like yes. what's happening walk us through that yeah so i think what's happening is that early first early jewish and then later on early christian interpreters read these texts and found it difficult to just read them as descriptions of ordinary human beings but they said this promise is so magnificent 
this new reality that's being described, for example, in Isaiah 11, or for example, in Psalm 2, is so marvelous that it is inconceivable for us to think that this would be just another period in the history of ancient Israel. There must be a promise of something larger. There must be a promise here of something that we've never seen before. Israel finally living in peace, being victorious over all of her enemies, and ushering in this new era of total peace. Yeah. So does does Daniel fit into this at all? Because this is a late second temple right. yes. text. Yes, yeah, like Daniel. Daniel, right. So Daniel 7 is another really important text to understand the origins of the belief in a Messiah. It is a text that was written in the second century before the Common Era, um, at a time when the temple in Jerusalem was uh, desecrated by a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And what Daniel 7 is all about, it's an it's a, um, oracle, it's a prophetic text that predicts the defeat of um, Antiochus, who is here portrayed in the form of a little horn that speaks arrogantly. So mm-hmm. he is brought before a uh, court in heaven. Um, he is condemned uh, and um, killed on the spot. And then in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, we read that um, the kingdom of Antiochus is now being replaced by someone who is called someone like a human being or a son of man. Yeah, that's the more common way Christians understand someone like a son of man. Exactly. One like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven, he appears before God, and is given uh, dominion and rulership um, that was taken away from Antiochus and is now given but just to the be- son of before man. You go, but just before you – I want to make sure we're clear on something, that uh, the translation you're reading said one like a human being, and many Christians I know are used to son of man. The issue is that they mean the same thing. They mean exactly the same S- thing. Son of man is not a divine title. Son of man means human. Well. <laughs> right? Or does it mean more than that in Daniel? <laughs> Yes, we don't know, right? Exactly. <laughs> we, we, we need to be honest here. We don't know. Yes. So, what we have is the text. And the text says, the text was originally written in Aramaic, right? And it says so in no uncertain terms that there is a person identified as the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And um, this person is then given dominion and an everlasting kingdom. So, now the big question is, who is this figure? And the answer varies depending on who it is whom you ask, right? So if you ask a scholar who works, a biblical scholar who works in the book of Daniel, the biblical scholar will probably tell you that this is an angelic figure. It's an angel like Michael or Gabriel, both of whom are mentioned in the book of Daniel. So this is simply a transferal of power from an earthly ruler to an angelic ruler. If you read the Uh, chapter all the way to the end, Uh, this is a vision that Daniel has, right? In the latter half of the chapter, there is in fact an angel who interprets this for Daniel. And the angel says this is not an individual at all, but it is in fact the people of Israel. That is to say, the son of man is identified by this interpreting angel as the people of Israel, meaning the story is really all about a turning of the table at the end of times. 
Right now it is the Greeks that rule over the Israelites, but at the end of time, Israel will be um, victorious. But if you ask an early Jewish or an early Christian reader of the text, they will say, they will agree with neither of these interpretations. They will say, no, 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 it's not an angel. No, 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 it's not the people of Israel, but it is really the Messiah. So that the Son of Man is, in fact, a messianic title. It's a title for the Messiah. And the everlasting kingdom that is introduced here in verse 14 is none other than the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. Okay, yeah. So, unfortunately, it's not clear. It's not and, clear? <laughs> I don't know and, whether and that's unfortunate. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes the, the clarity is, is imposed when it's not really there. Well, I, the only thing I wanted to clarify is because maybe, maybe we can now tie a lot of this Messiah talk into the New Testament and maybe how it was uh, influenced by things like Daniel 7 because Jesus self-designates as the Son of Man. And is that, again, a generic term or is that a specific reference to this Daniel 7, Son of Man? Yeah, that's a great question. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So I think the answer is that by the time we get to uh, the New Testament, by the late first century, right, this title or the, the designation son of man has become a messianic title. So by this time, there is no doubt that when you talk about the son of man, 
you really are not talking about an original, an, an ordinary human being. You really are talking about the Messiah. And so the writers of our Gospels, the evangelists, they deliberately use this title as well as other titles because they know that their audiences will exactly know um, that they're really talking about the Messiah. But clarif just clarify, if, if we can clarify, mm -hmm. you said it's become a messianic title, but yes. what does messianic mean? Does it mean, for example, I mean, uh, speaking as someone who's been around Christians and is one, mm -hmm. I, I know what people think. They say, well, the Messiah really means a God-man hybrid of some mm -hmm. sort, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the incarnation. So, right. Messiah means yes. what, what it didn't mean in Psalm 2, which is a, a divine human figure of some sort. Is yes. that what is – was that a common notion? Is that what was meant or is this more a um, – uh, an end-time ruler, a king, let's say, who is especially endowed with the spirit of God and the presence of God to rule the people? Or is it something else? I mean, that that's part of the, the I think, the stumbling that mm -hmm. uh, that people have over the term because it's just, yeah. it's, it's so not darn hard clear. to define. Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think what makes it so hard to define is the fact that at this time, you have a great variety of different expectations of who the Messiah would be um, and what exactly would happen when the Messiah shows up. So some groups emphasize the royal aspect, right? He would come victorious and rule over Israel. Others emphasized more the um, priestly aspect. He would be a high priest. So we see this, for example, in the epistle to the Hebrews. Others emphasized more the prophetic aspect. So there was not just one set of messianic expectations. There was not one clearly formed idea of who the Messiah would be and what would happen, but there were a great variety of different ways of thinking of the Messiah. And I think these different titles that we talk about um, reflect that. Let me, let me briefly throw out another marvelous text in the Gospel of Luke in the first chapter, the famous Annunciation, right, where um, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and uh, greets her and announces to her that she will give birth to the Messiah. And in this very short passage there in Luke 1, um, the angel does in fact use several messianic titles. So he says to her, he will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. There you have another um, messianic title. And he calls him son of God. Um, and so there, there already there is an understanding that Mary and the readers of the Gospel of Luke um, will understand that these are uh, titles that are meant to say, look, this Messiah for whom you are waiting and whom you are giving many different names, that is really Jesus. Yeah. And I'm reading here, too, in Luke 1, I don't have Luke 1 memorized, but he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. Yeah. So, is it is it safe, at least at this point, to think, well, their notions of Messiah, there is a royal dimension to it, yes, at least absolutely. here. I mean, you mentioned mm -hmm. Hebrews, which is a great mm -hmm. example of a priestly kind of mm -hmm. notion of Messiah. Mm -hmm. Very much so, Yeah. So, in Luke, there's a strong emphasis on the, the royal part. So, what's happening in the New Testament is that 
different New Testament authors were trying to make sense of the Jesus event, right? What just happened? Why is this significant? How does it apply to us, to our community? And what they're doing is they're describing, they're remembering Jesus in light of their own needs, but also trying to answer the different messianic expectations that were around at the time. So they're using, and Luke is the prime example, Matthew would be another example, they're using familiar ways to describe Jesus, ways that were really shaped by different messianic expectations in Judaism at the time. Because if they were just to make up their own language, if they were to make up their own motifs, their own ways of talking about Jesus, um, they could never bring across the message that this really is the Messiah for whom Israel has waited. So they're using familiar language, but are they are they infusing it with, let's say, additional meaning or a different meaning? Or because I mean, maybe maybe I'm 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 not in my own mind clear about this, but one thing that sort of has struck me is how. The biblical writers, as you say, I, they're they're working through, yes, <laughs> they're working they're out working, how to talk exactly. about this Jesus. Exactly. And I'm thinking in light of a Messiah who was, who lost to the Romans, who was crucified, and whom they believed was raised from the dead. And it seems like they were trying to, the language at their disposal, was the language of the tradition. Yes. Yes. But. Um, yeah, but, but it wasn't but, a great fit. <laughs> yeah, maybe it wasn't a great fit. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying it was to, what they had, but yeah. it, it didn't all fit. I guess what, what I'm trying to get at, I mean, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to hear that, that um, the language comes from the tradition, and the tradition itself is diverse, mm-hmm. yes, and it very developed diverse. over time, right? That's exactly right, yes. And the New Testament writers are picking up on certain threads of those traditions. Yes, yes. And maybe adopting them and then applying it in their own way to their faith in a yes. crucified and yeah. risen yeah. Messiah. I, I think it actually was a pretty good fit. I think it worked really, really well that the tradition was so diverse and so rich that it really provided them with language, with texts in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, um, to describe very well who Jesus was. Can I throw out another text for us Absolutely, to, to think yes. about? Uh, so, this is in, uh, still in the Gospel of Luke. In the fourth chapter, there's this great story where Jesus is in Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Luke throws in that little phrase, as was his custom, right? Yeah. And there in the synagogue, he has handed a, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, And so he reads a few lines of that scroll and then hands the scroll back to the attendant. And then Luke throws in this this marvelous um, phrase there, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, right? (laughs) They were all like mesmerized by this passage. And then he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I always joke that that's the, the most popular uh, sermon because it's the shortest sermon that any Christian or Jew has ever preached, right? Today, this <laughs> scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, Mr. Nixon. Of course, right? It's very short. So, what's really going on? If we read this text 
out of context. If we think that this is something that the story only is attested in the Gospel of Luke, if we read this as a Lucan creation, um, then it seems rather arbitrary. Luke could have picked any passage in the Old Testament, and Jesus would just have said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and everybody says, yes, okay. But now we are in the very fortunate position that there is a Dead Sea Scroll known as the Messianic Apocalypse, which predates Luke by at least 100 years, that is a description of what, according to this author, whom we don't know, this is text we only know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, of what will happen when the Messiah comes. It's a short description. Okay, the Messiah will come, everybody will obey him, and this is what happens. And that author is going back to the same text in the prophet Isaiah, namely from Isaiah chapter 61. Now, all of a sudden, we know for a fact from the Dead Sea Scrolls that Isaiah 61, prior to the time of Jesus, and certainly at the time of Jesus, was read as a prediction of the Messiah. And so now, all of a sudden, the story in Luke takes on a very different meaning. So when Luke has Jesus read Isaiah 61, he is very deliberately reading a text that comes with messianic expectations, right? The people at the time just knew what this text was all about. And when Luke tells us the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, what he's really saying is they knew what this text was all about, and they want to know, Jesus, what do you have to say? And this is why for Jesus it is enough to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, by which Luke has Jesus say, I am this person. I am the Messiah. Yeah. My, yeah, my point here is that if we were to read Luke only, it would be just any passage of the Old Testament. But once we read this story in the context of Second Temple literature, and more specifically in the context of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we understand that there is a deeper meaning here, that Luke knows exactly what he is doing, right? He's picking a passage from the Old Testament that has a well-established history of interpretation. Uh, the audience at the time would have certainly um, appreciated and known why Jesus is reading this particular text. And I, to me, that example crystallizes from very nicely the entire issue. It's not – it is inaccurate to say Luke's portrayal of Jesus or Jesus, whoever's doing this, is citing the Old Testament. Look how wonderful it is that he's citing the Old Testament. He's citing the Hebrew Scriptures already within a known and shared understanding of exactly. what that passage meant for them. Exactly. In other words, you can't – here's the thing. You can't understand Luke chapter 4 apart from understanding something of that development. Yes, yes. So that you understand right. the gravitas of what is happening there in that moment in the synagogue. And, and to me, that's yes, that's yes. like – that illustrates the beautiful importance yes. of um, – as you say in your book, minding the gap, mm -hmm. right? right. <laughs> the gap yes. in between the Testaments and all that literature and the traditions that developed. And I think it makes Luke and his gospel so much richer even because we now understand that it's not just a nice story, but it is a story that constantly alludes to certain expectations. And he is bending over backwards to say, 
in this Jesus, these expectations are fulfilled. Yes. Well, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time, but I think that's a great place to to wrap up the conversation. I do think that really put a pin on what we've been talking about in terms of these expectations and the importance of the Second Temple in understanding who Jesus was and what Jesus was about and what the New Testament is about. So, as we wrap up, is there anything, uh, Matthias, that you would want to promote other than the book that, that Pete just mentioned here, the Mind the Gap, other projects that you've worked on that might help other listeners and readers uh, catch up on some of the Second Temple stuff? Yeah, so I think um, I, would, I would just keep it with Mind the Gap at this point, where I'm trying to um, really um, underscore the significance of um, Jesus's Judaism. Um, but I would like to add uh, perhaps one comment. Um, when I talk to my readers uh, who've read Mind the Gap, often they tell me that they find it um, liberating um, to learn about the Judaism of Jesus and to sort of move beyond this just being a phrase, which when it's just a phrase, it's sort of meaningless. But once we fill it with content, then all of a sudden there emerges this entire world. I think they find it liberating because it helps them um, live a true life as Christians um, without any anti-Judaism, without this incessant appetite to pitch Jesus against the Pharisees and the Jews at their time, but um, rather to be um, okay with reading the New Testament in its Jewish context to read beyond the Bible, to appreciate that other early Jewish texts at the time um, can also be a vehicle of truth and theology and, and enriching. And I think that's a very important message for uh, Christians in the 21st century. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us, Matthias. We really appreciated the conversation. I learned a lot. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Wonderful time, Matthias. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pete. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone, to this episode. We had so much fun uh, talking with Matthias. And if you want to find out more about him, you can go to his website, MatthiasHenza.org. And by all means, check out his book. This came out in 2017. I use it in my classes. It's so readable and so full of information and just walks you through things in a beautiful way, just like he did here in the episode. But the name of the book is Mind the Gap, How the Jewish Writings Between the Old and New Testament Help Us Understand Jesus. And this is put up by the good people at Fortress Press. And as always, we want to make sure and thank our team. Uh, without them, we couldn't do what we do. So thanks to uh, Shay, our creative director, uh, Reed, our community champion, Dave, our audio engineer, and Megan, the producer of this podcast. Actually, Jared, we could do it. It would just take us 10 years to put out one episode. Thank just, you. Just to be clear. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Very factual. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. See ya. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Yeah. I'm sorry, you just woke me up. I was. <laughs> I got to start over. I'm sorry. I was like, <laughs> I got to start over. What's I happened? just got stuck. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Our topic is. Can you handle this today? Mm -hmm. all right. Yeah. Want to talk about it? I do like fog out the last few days <sighs> in the middle of sentences. All right. Oh, shit. I was supposed to do all that. All right, let me try one more. Oh, jeez, Sorry, let me do it one more time. Okay, fine. You want all the glory for I yourself. also get really tired of saying really. I say really a lot. That's okay. That's your thing. Yeah.